Hi everybody, Justin here, and as you can tell by my voice, I've gotten myself sick again. Well, I don't really get myself sick, sickness kind of just comes to me. We started recording this on uh, January 13th, and it's just gotten progressively worse from there, and hopefully by the time this drops, I will be back to normal, but I just wanted to give you a heads up now that the episode that you're about to hear is incredibly nasal, but I am going to do my best to continue because, as they say, the show must go on. With that being said, enjoy the show. (coughs) Abandon all remote controls, ye who enter here. It's time to unlock the gates to Telehell. Sports, television, the two of them were practically made for each other. And while just about every professional sport known to mankind has laid its foundation through the early years of the medium, only one sport keeps pulling in the biggest audience. Open wide for some soccer! Uh, maybe in other parts of the world, but for now let's focus on just the United States. Professional football has been a presence on TV since 1939, when Philadelphia faced off against what was then the Brooklyn Football Dodgers. Every year since that game aired, its presence and its broadcast technology not only continued to grow, but so did the number of teams that would play thanks to the merger of their rival leagues in the 60s. And of course, the advent of the Super... Oh, right. I almost forgot. This is going to be one of those episodes where we need to tread lightly when it comes to the terminology that we use in describing certain events. We're not 100% certain if we're supposed to explicitly mention the name of the league that brings football to the nation, nor do we think we're allowed to mention by name the two-worded title of the major sporting event that caps off the end of each football season, nor do we believe we're allowed to mention the two teams that will be involved in this story, though we can mention their cities of origin. Most importantly, one thing I know for certain is that we're not allowed to use any footage from any football game. Mostly because of that disclaimer that they air in the middle of each game that says duplication, rebroadcast, or retransmission is not allowed without express written consent of the National League that provides their fans of punting and passing. So forgive us if we tread a little lightly here. Now, where was I? All right, the 1960s. By 1968, football on TV became as religious an experience as going to wherever one worshipped on a Sunday, if at all and just about everything grinded to a halt nationwide whenever a big game was on. So fervent were the fans that they expected to stay with the game up until the bitter end, no matter who they were rooting for. But then, there was this one time where a game reached a dramatic cliffhanger, only for the ball to be taken away unexpectedly by a little German girl. And the fans watching that game would get angry enough to light a fire Bring on the game now. In the late 1960s, only two TV networks carried football, CBS carrying the National Conference teams and NBC carrying the American Conference. This story focuses on perhaps one of the most storied rivalries in sports history, the New York G- Sorry, sorry, sorry. Uh, New York versus Oakland. 
Though we don't have a lot of time to go over what the circumstances of the rivalry was, suffice to say that the history between both teams are worth seeking out on your own time. In 1968, the two teams would meet up for a pivotal match in Oakland. One that would not only help shape the emerging playoff picture from that season, but would also act as a potential sneak preview for a possible championship showdown later that January. Meanwhile, half a world away at NBC headquarters in New York, the network was gearing up for a major November sweeps event. One that they were hoping to use football's large audience to shore up large ratings for thanks to a strong lead-in. A made-for-TV adaptation of the classic children's story, Heidi. Starring 10-year-old Jennifer Edwards in the title role, and future Disney black hole villain Maximilian Schell as her alpine grandfather. The network had spent untold millions on the production, and had sold out advertising for the program months in advance, including a sponsorship from Timex Watches. It was certain to be the finest feather in the peacock's plumage when it was scheduled to air at 7 p.m. Eastern Time on Sunday, November 17, 1968, a date and a time that was also determined well in advance. So on the outset, it seemed as though there could not possibly be a problem with this scheduling. Of course, before the movie could air, the network had to fulfill its football obligations first. The network hoped that viewers who tuned into the game would not walk over to the television and change the channel or turn off the power, but would rather watch the evening's programming instead. Given the already heated rivalry between the two teams, as well as both teams being squared in the heavy media markets of Northern California and the New York metropolitan area, they anticipated a big enough blockbuster which would cause the audience to remain in their seats and watch the game in its entirety, thus leading to a perfect lead-in for Heidi. NBC's preparations for the November 17th game at Oakland were standard practice, and while it's easy to appreciate 21st century technology and all it entails, the Master Control Center at NBC in the 1960s could be considered primitive by today's standards. Giving you a heads up now, I'm about to throw a lot of technical psychobabble your way, and a lot of it is boring to the average person. So please feel free to skip about two minutes for the layman description. Otherwise, I'll go as fast as I can. For everybody else who's actually interested in that kind of stuff, we now present how live TV was presented back in the day. <gasps> The nerve center for NBC was known as Broadcast Operations Control, or BOC. A supervisor for the events prepares the series of network orders which would result in the game running as scheduled, followed by Heidi. As a reminder, up to this point in history, no football game has ever run over its scheduled length. However, other NBC executives stress that Heidi must start as scheduled. NBC president Julian Goodman told his executives before the weekend that the well-sponsored, well-promoted film must start on time. NBC sports executive producer Don Scotty Connell took care to tell the game producer, Don Ellis, that Heidi must start at 7 p.m. in the East. Over Ellis' objection that he had been trained to never leave a game, Connell told Ellis that NBC had sold the time and was obligated to switch to the film. NBC ran three broadcast controls in Burbank, Chicago, and New York City. A supervisor by the name of Dick Klein was stationed at the New York facility for the game. In the era before satellite transmission, programming was transmitted by coaxial cable line with cooperation from local phone companies. For this game, the Burbank facility was to receive a feed from Oakland, insert commercials and network announcements, and send the modified feed via telephone wire to a switching station west of Chicago near the Mississippi River. An engineer was stationed there to activate the Oakland feed into the entire network when the game began, to cut it on instruction and then return to his base. He had been told to expect at 6.58 p.m. Eastern Time a network announcement for Heidi. After which, he was to cut the feed from Burbank and the Heidi feed from New York would begin. This place Burbank in effective control of one of the engineer would cut the feed since he would act upon hearing the announcement. Connell, Klein's boss, was available in case of trouble watching from his home in Connecticut. His NBC Sports Vice President Chet Simmons, who alternated weekends with Connell as on-call in the event of difficulties, was also watching from his home in New York City. NBC President Goodman and NBC Sports head Carl Limited also turned out the game, which was expected to be exciting in their New York area homes. <sighs>
Or to put it in layman's terms, TV was fed through phone lines back then, and once the lines were cut, there was no turning back no matter how hard one tried. With all that information in mind, we need to take our seats at the 50-yard line for this one. This was certainly going to be a game that nobody wanted to miss. And pending our clip clearances, we're going to give you a play-by-play of all that happened after the break. The following program is brought to you in living color on NBC. Sunday of NBC Week ignites with the big adventure of Bonanza. Begin a brand new season at the Ponderosa with the Cartwright. Then it's time to contemplate all the beautiful things in the world. To consider its many magnificent works of art, especially the beautiful Phyllis Diller Show. Not just another pretty face. The beautiful Phyllis Diller Show happens Sunday during television's biggest week. Sunday of NBC Week is hot, beginning with the new adventures of Huck Finn. A classic comes to life, combining live action with a magical touch of animation. Join Huck, Becky, and Tom in their endless search for adventure. Then, Walt Disney's wonderful world of color starts an all-new season with the intriguing adventure, The Legend of the Boy and the Eagle. Next, The Mothers-in-Law. Eve Arden and Kay Ballard are back for more fun. It all happens Sunday during television's biggest week. Is it so beautiful? I never seen nothing like a beautiful. <laughs> ah, you got a good taste. As we mentioned, November 17th, 1968, Richard Nixon was just elected president. The Beatles' Hey Jude was cooling down from spending nine weeks at the top of the Hot 100. And at 4 p.m. Eastern Time, 1 p.m. Pacific, perhaps one of the most unusual football games of all time was about to kick off. And with that, we've got a bit of a problem here. Like we said at the beginning, we're a little hesitant to use anything that may violate the Legion of Football-related doom and their disclaimers that we can't use clips from any of their games without express written consent, even if the game itself is over 50 years old. However, there is no rule saying that we can't simply list the details of the game while playing football-related sound effects in the background. So, rules. Meet Loophole. I'm just going to go ahead and read the details of the game brought to us by perhaps the most evil invention ever created. Wikipedia. Oh, they know why. Don't deny it. Anyway, as a soundtrack, I stopped by the Hell gift shop to pick up this old copy of Milton Bradley's electric football game, as well as an old copy of Mattel's electronic football to act as player reenactments. I also met up with this large crowd here from the Anger Circle, who all apparently died in various stadium riots and stampedes since time began. They'll be acting as our audience today. All I ask of you, the listeners, is that you bear with me for a second. Of the opening kickoff, the... Hey, what the hell is this? Penalty on number 666. Boring the listener with details nobody cares about. You already did that once earlier in the show. Don't make me warn you again. 15-minute penalty. First down. Oh, come on. I had all the details planned out. They even got a crowd and everything. Sports fans love a long backstory. 
You are a podcast about television. Stick to the subject matter and talk about the only corner of the game that matters. Still first down. Fine. We'll cut to the chase. Lousy zebra. Oh, come on! Penalty on number 666, calling the ref a questionable name. Five-minute penalty on top of the 15, still first down. Okay, okay, I'm sorry. How was I supposed to know referees would exist down here anyway? Clearly you haven't watched enough football in your lifetime. Resume play. Okay, you heard the Foot Locker employee. Oh, shut up! Let's fast forward to the fourth quarter. By this point in the game, the two starting quarterbacks combined for 31 incomplete passes, with the clock stopping on each incompletion. Officials called 19 penalties, leading to more clock stoppages, and each team using all six of its allocated timeouts, not to mention the many scores that led to additional commercial breaks. At halftime, Scotty Connell called Dick Klein and without urgency discussed that the game seemed to be running longer than expected. In this interview for the 2003 book, Stay Tuned, Television's Unforgettable Moments, Klein himself shared his own thoughts on approaching the witching hour of 7 p.m. It was not a big deal at the time because no football game had ever gone beyond 7 o'clock. As the fourth quarter began, it was 6.20 Eastern, and NBC executives began to realize that the game might not end by 7. Connell, watching the game from his home in Connecticut, also noticed the fourth quarter was running terribly slow by his estimation. At a quarter to seven, he called Klein again, and both men agreed that the game would not end on time. Both supported running the end of the game, but given Goodman's instructions, his permission was required. Connell agreed to call NBC Sports President Carl Lindemann, and that he and Lindemann would then speak to Goodman. After promising Klein a return call, Connell reached Lindemann by telephone. Lindemann agreed that the end of the game should be broadcast and both men began trying to reach Goodman. Lindemann was successful in reaching Goodman and asked the network president, what about the instruction to broadcast operations that Heidi had to go on at 7 no matter what? Goodman replied, that's crazy. It's a terrible idea. Lindemann then set up a three-way conversation with himself, Goodman, and NBC television president Don Durgan. After several minutes of discussion, Durgan agreed to delay the start of Heidi until after the game was completed, even though earlier executives had told Klein to make sure he started the game on time. Those same executives wound up changing their minds late in the game. Once again, Dick Klein in 2003. My boss called me and uh, said uh, that it looked really bad, and so he was going to see if he could get permission from uh, the president of the company uh, to change the conditions for the day and see if we could stay on to the end of the football game if it ran long. So he hung up and I waited for him, and uh, at about a quarter of seven, I still hadn't heard back from him. Watching the clock nervously, Klein attempted to call Connell back, only to find both lines busy. He waited as long as he could, but then made one final unsuccessful attempt. Unknown to Klein, Connell was talking to Goodman, who had agreed to slide the network, that is, start the movie as soon as Kurt Gowdy signed off. Connell then called the game producer, Don Ellis, in Oakland to tell him the news, then called the BOC supervisor in Burbank, who, not knowing Connell, refused his order, and instead insisted on speaking with Goodman directly. As Goodman had disconnected to allow Connell to call Oakland, this could not be done. At about quarter of seven, the people who wanted to see Heidi started calling in to find out if Heidi was going to be on the air on time at seven. Then as I got to seven o'clock, then the football fans started calling in. 
wanting to know if, the, if we were going to stay with the football game. These calls jammed the switchboards and even reportedly blew out all the fuses in some of them, preventing the executives from getting through to each other to resolve the situation. NBC protocol required an operations order from Connell to countermand the midweek written orders, but Klein received no such call from the increasingly desperate Connell, who was frustrated by the switchboard issues. Without such an order and not knowing of Goodman's approval, Klein made the decision that Heidi would start on time. So I called him. Uh, he was at home because it was a Sunday afternoon. Uh, I called him. He had two phone lines. I called one line. It was busy. I called the other line. It was busy. And uh, I had nowhere else to go at that point. I looked up and it was time to do what I had to do. And so uh, I took the game off the air. The TV audience saw the return kickoff out of the end zone to the Oakland 22-yard line with a minute remaining. Burbank BOC played the closing football theme and gave the word cue to the outraged shock of Ellis and Connell, and the connection was irretrievably broken. A small consolation was that viewers in the Pacific and Mountain time zones could watch the game to its conclusion, unlike those in the Eastern and Central zones. They instead saw the opening credits to the movie and were unaware that Oakland was scoring two touchdowns to win the game. Unrealizing that the network was switching away from the game, Goodman said to Lindemann by phone, Where the hell is our football game gone? During the station break, which began with the network announcement, the following program is brought to you in living color on NBC. Goodman called a BOC phone to which he only knew the number, and which was not part of NBC's regular exchange, which had already blown 26 fuses in that past hour. When Klein answered it, Goodman ordered him to go back to the game. Although Klein knew there was no way to reconnect the feed, he promised to do as best as he could. By the time the game ended at 7.07 Eastern Time, thousands of viewers were calling the network to complain about missing the end of the football game. Others called newspapers, television stations, even the NYPD, both to seek the final score and simply to vent. In Oakland, the broadcasters left the booth to tell Ellis that the final two minutes were probably the most exciting that they've ever seen. Ellis replied, It's too bad America didn't see it. Realizing that the original call had been lost, Ellis had Kurt Gowdy recreate the description of the two touchdowns by Oakland on tape, for reasons that we'll get into in just a moment. In an attempt to inform the audience of the game's outcome, NBC displayed the message of the final score of the game during the film. 43-32 in favor of Oakland. The following morning, the New York Times had a far more pointed headline in their arts and entertainment section. New York 32, Oakland 29, Heidi 14. And that NBC could not have managed to alienate more viewers that evening. When all was said and done, Goodman issued a statement apologizing for the incident and stating that he had missed the ending of the game as much as anybody. He stated that it was a forgivable error committed by humans who were concerned about children expecting to see the movie. The following morning, Klein was called into a meeting with his bosses. He was told that if he had done anything other than what he did, NBC would have been at the mercy of Timex and Klein would have been fired. Fortunately, for the sake of human error, the network turned fiasco into an advantage by subsequent self-mockery, promoting the following week's New York telecast with an advertisement showing Broadway Joe Namath with Heidi on his shoulders and running another ad with testimonials about Heidi. The last, quote, I didn't get a chance to see it, but I heard it was great, signed by Namath himself. Harry Reisner, who was filling in for Walter Cronkite on CBS, gave the result of the game. Heidi married the goat herder. On the ABC Evening News, anchorman Frank Reynolds read excerpts from Heidi while the game was playing as cut-ins, 
But it was NBC News that played the better role of Messenger. As at the close of that evening's Huntley and Brinkley report, news icon David Brinkley pretty much laid the cards out on the table. Last night, somebody in the vast reaches of the NBC network didn't get the word, as in the Army. The result was that football fans by the thousands were roused to a cold fury, and some probably haven't cooled down yet. At 7, NBC had scheduled a two-hour special program for children, a dramatization of Heidi. It was decided Heidi should wait a couple of minutes until the game was over. But somehow that decision never reached those who were pushing the buttons. So the football game was cut off the air a minute before it ended, and Heidi was started. The football fans erupted. There were 10,000 phone calls of complaint to New York NBC alone, so many the telephone switchboards blew out their fuses. NBC apologized for the error, but by then Oakland had scored two touchdowns in the last minute, had beaten New York, the game was over, the fans who missed it could not be consoled. Well, here is the last minute as it would have been seen last night if somebody at NBC had got the word. Obviously, we can't play the actual clips from the game, but I assure you, Oakland did score two touchdowns against New York. After a fiasco like that, something had to be done. But before that happens, where does the Heidi game get sacked on the ironically frozen tundra of Telehell? Hey, you want to take this one, ref? Penalty number 666, casting judgment on a major television event involving football and a German girl. Nine circle penalty maximum, depending on judgment. First down. Limbo, lust, gluttony, greed, wrath, heresy, violence, fraud, treachery. Without a doubt, this incident invoked wrath in two end zones. One at NBC for pretty much running around like a peacock's head was cut off and not knowing what to do in an untested situation. But more importantly, the anger that was felt by those watching the game at home, especially on the East Coast and the Central Time Zone. Of course, the network wouldn't be half as angry about the incident were it not for the large amount of money that they not only invested in producing and promoting the movie, but also the possibility of being denied a raft of cash from the show's sponsor, Timex Watches, if the movie didn't start on time or at all, regardless of the circumstances circumstances, making for an easy field goal for greed, which in turn also allowed for safeties in both gluttony and heresy. Gluttony towards the network for clearly not getting their priorities in order and rather focusing on the bottom line, and heresy, because no matter what it is the network will promote, people, even back then, cared about their football. Cutting away from the game, just as it was about to get interesting, is probably one of the biggest slaps in the face anyone could give to the diehard fans. The 1968 Heidi game earns four out of nine circles of telehell. Upon realizing just how much interference there was left over on the field, something had to be done so that something like this would never happen again, so as to satisfy both the advertisers and, more importantly, the viewers. In the aftermath of a Heidi game, to prevent similar occurrences happening in future game telecasts, a special Heidi phone a hotline connected to a different exchange and unaffected by switchboard meltdowns, was installed at BOC. The network quickly changed its procedures to allow games to finish before other programming begins, which is now standard practice. Simply put, if you've ever wanted to know why The Simpsons has lasted 30 years, you have Heidi to thank for that, and also the obscenely large lead-in audience that it winds up getting every week. But I digress. 
In subsequent television contracts, the merged League of Football Justice, and yes, I know, these fake names are starting to get ridiculous, required language which obligated the networks to show games to completion in various TV markets. Other major professional sports leagues in North America also shared the same rule in regards to their own respective contracts. As an ironic coda to this story, in November of 1975, NBC planned to air Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory at 7 p.m. Eastern right after a game between Oakland and Washington. When the game went into overtime, NBC stayed with it for almost 45 minutes, but then wound up joining the film already in progress, prompting angry calls from parents, which I guess sort of counts as karma or perhaps an instance of what's good for the goose, especially those that lay giant chocolate golden eggs. It's a lot of nonsense. A little nonsense now and then is relished by the wisest Regardless of all the trouble the game caused, it ultimately became one of those instances that lived up to the expression, someday we'll all look back on this and laugh. In that spirit, in 1997, the Heidi game was voted among the 10 most memorable games in pro football history and the most memorable regular season contest. In 2005, TV Guide designated the Heidi game at number six on its list of the 100 most unexpected TV moments in history. Interviewed by the magazine, Jennifer Edwards, the star of Heidi, commented, quote, My gravestone is going to say she was a great moment in sports, end quote. And finally, in the interview for Stay Tuned, Dick Klein summed up the events of the Heidi game like this. I thought, well, I'm, I'd probably lose my job, which of course I didn't. Uh, as a matter of fact, uh, they promoted me the following month. And uh, by the end of the next year, I was in fact directing uh, Brinkley on the... Uh, the Weekend Huntley Brinkley Report. <laughs> Next time on Telehell, from one football fiasco to another, and perhaps the single biggest fiasco, not just in sports, but in entertainment history. So the moment that happened, you immediately covered your breast mm -hmm. because you didn't want to be exposed. Mm -hmm. If you wanted to be exposed, you wouldn't have covered it. Exactly. Until then. If it's not in Telehell, it's not worth a damn. Interview footage of Dick Klein comes courtesy of the 2003 book Stay Tuned, Television's Unforgettable Moments, written and edited by Joe Garner and Holly Camberlink. Available at Amazon.com or wherever most books are sold. Telehell was written, produced, edited, and narrated by me, Justin Hart. All clips used in this program are protected under the Fair Use Doctrine of the U.S. Copyright Act of 1976, and all clips used come courtesy of their respective companies and owners. Some of the music used in this program comes courtesy of YouTube and their audio library service. Telehell is a production of Horton Road and is distributed by Libsyn. There's now more ways to listen to Telehell than ever before. Of course, the usual ways, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, and our website, telehell.libsyn.com, but also these new places, including castbox.fm, podtail.com, listennotes.com, mytuner-radio.com, and blueberry, which is spelled B-U-L-B-R-R-Y.com. We'll have many more coming soon. And as always, don't forget to like, comment, rate, subscribe, and share on our social feeds. Twitter and Facebook, both at Telehell Podcast.